Financial services firms are choosing between build and buy for Gen AI in the tax function. Here are some thoughts from EY and Real-Time Insights. I think the biggest question for our clients is a build versus buy conversation. Is As we talked about, there's going to be a need to upskill. That costs money. There's a need for tax talent that's hard to find in the marketplace. And technology budgets are strained everywhere. And so our clients have to decide, are they going to go it alone to build tax models? Or are they going to lean on a third-party provider that has scale and investment to leverage that investment going forward? Learn more at EY.com. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Welcome to another episode of the Odd Lots podcast. I'm Joe Weisenthal. And I'm Tracy Alloway. So, Tracy, I'm a little worried that the next few years are going to be kind of annoying. Annoying in what sense, Joe? Well, you know, it's like we're coming on 10 years since the financial crisis. Mm. And so every day it's going to be another story about 10 years since this went under and 10 years since this went under and everyone's <laughs> going to be retelling war stories about where they were and journalists are going to be talking about how they were in the office till 2 a.m. I'm already kind of dreading it all a little bit. Really? But I, I mean, aren't those fond memories as a financial journalist? You know, 2007, 2008, those were the, the sort of glory years. People couldn't even keep up with the news flow. There was so much happening. No, I... See, I'm excited about telling my stories. I just don't want to hear everyone else's. You know, I'm just very selfish. I just, I love my memories. I just don't want to hear everyone else's stories. Well, I applaud your honesty, Joe. Yeah. That being said, despite the fact that, you know, we're going to have all of these anniversaries coming up over the next couple of years, it has been obviously an extraordinary time. And I think all of us have learned a ton about how markets and economics work during this period. Yeah, um, you could definitely say that. I guess you could also argue it the other way and say that the financial crisis and the period after it were so um, special or so unprecedented that we've all learned massively new things, right? Like how many people were really experts on yeah. QE uh, before 2009? And I mean, I guess you could argue there aren't that many people who truly understand it now. But in any case, at least people know what it kind of is. Maybe we've just exposed how little we know. I frame it this way because today we are going to be talking to a longtime industry veteran, someone who worked for the IMF, who's involved in mutual funds, who's been a global macro trader for several years, uh, and someone who has, uh, you know, sort of cataloged all of the things that we should have learned since the crisis. And I think that his perspective and sort of what he's observed has sort of been an extremely uh, offers some extremely important lessons from the last 10 years. So, Joe, I think I know who you're talking about. And if it's who I think it is, uh, I'm very excited. He's a guy who's very active on Twitter and he has a great blog as well. And we all read it. Yeah, we're going to be talking to Mark Dow. He anyone who's involved in finance Twitter has certainly seen him. He has this 
awesome blog called Behavioral Macro, where he talks about big uh, macro topics. He recently wrote a post about 15 things that every uh, investor should have learned from the financial crisis and its aftermath. And we're going to be talking through a few of those things. That sounds great. Mark Dow, thank you very much for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me, guys. Before we get started, uh, you know, many of us in media and finance Twitter have interacted with you for a long time, read your stuff, read your tweets, uh, talked to you on TV or whatever. But uh, for those of the people who don't know who you are yet, why don't you give us the, the very brief, uh, the brief bio? Yeah, the thumbnail sketch is uh, I uh, started my career at the Treasury Department as an international economist working on financial disasters in emerging markets primarily. That's where they they were then. Uh, And then I moved to the International Monetary Fund, where I worked on a lot of different countries and the same kind of debt sustainability issues. After that, I managed money at a mutual fund for a number of years, fixed income, primarily emerging markets. And then I I moved to a global macro hedge fund for about seven years uh, and uh, basically ran part of the book. You know, I had my own portfolio where I, I ran risk in all kinds of asset classes, primarily currency, in emerging markets, interest rates, commodities, that, that kind of thing. And now I, I run a glorified private uh, uh, family office uh, from, from my hometown in California. What strikes me is important about your background before we get into the various lessons is that you've seen the eco side and the trading side. And often the two sides can't really speak to each other very well. A lot of traders can be very good, but they don't really understand economics. A lot of uh, economists have a deep understanding of how things work, but they have no idea how markets really work. As you describe your career, you've really uh, seen and bridged uh, the two worlds. This has been a massive advantage to to me uh, over my career. You see a lot of shops, particularly the big ones, uh, where there's a stark uh, divide between thought leaders and risk takers. And not that many people speak both languages. So the thought leaders are great for framing things and providing frameworks and backdrop uh, ways to analyze issues and to communicate with clients who want who, who want to understand the world better. But they often don't have that market savvy, that psychological dimension uh, that makes a, a good risk taker, uh, that defines a good risk taker. Speaking of framing ideas, you did pen this blog post about 15 things that investors should have learned after the uh, financial crisis. And one of the ones that really struck me, um, and these are all, you know, they're numbered, they're in bullet points, they're relatively short. So we really want you to dig into them a bit more. Uh, But one of the ones was this idea that the interest rate sensitivity of economic activity is less than what was previously believed to be the case. And I want to tie that in with another one, which is the idea that uh, the economic channel of monetary policy and the financial channel of monetary policy uh, kind of might be operating and existing separately. Can you walk us through those points? For me, that might be the most important portion of, of, of the post, really, from a policy a policy standpoint. I wrote this because I was a little frustrated. I, I had, from, given my background, I'd climbed into so many central banks all over the world. I'd seen so many things, like a, you know, a doctor in the ER with a lot of experience, that I was kind of ahead of, of the curve on a, on a lot of the a lot of these issues, just because I, you've seen financial crisis and money printing and all these things before. Uh, but in, when it came to the when it came to the U.S., a lot of people who were really deeply uh, steeped in 
1980s economics uh, had a very fixed view of, of, of money supply and interest rates and economic activity. And what we know really is what, what the element that was lacking was behavior. The, the models that were taught in the 80s and that were perpetuated throughout really until the great financial crisis was a very rational way of looking at it. A lower price for money means more borrowing, both in, plan- in, the, in the financial sector and in the real economy, and higher rates means less. And if you just look at what happened uh, before and after the crisis, you'll see that this doesn't really hold at the other factors that are, that are more important. You know, it, from 2004 to 2007 or so, people were borrowing like crazy, and the Fed funds rate was around five. Everyone wanted to borrow. Everyone wanted to lend. Everybody was on. The money supply was growing rapidly because banks were lending and and people were borrowing. After the crisis, for a long period of time, rates were zero and nobody was lending. Nobody was borrowing. Uh, And this isn't just a U.S. phenomenon. You see it around the world. So uh, you have to ask yourself, you know, why is that? Why aren't we more sensitive to interest rates? And the simple answer is risk appetite. Uh, People were we're much more sensitive to uh, our risk appetite, whether we feel secure in our jobs than we are to the interest rate. If you're secure in your job and you know you've got a good income for the next 10 years, you're more likely to go out and buy that house, even if the interest rate is five instead of three. Uh, that's just the way human nature works. So I think that's why people overstated the sensitivity of economic activity uh, to to interest rates, uh, and if you factor that in, if you look more at people's risk appetite, uh, then you'll uh, you'll get a better picture of of what's going to happen. You know, to the transmission of monetary policy into the economy or into finance. Now, with respect to the two different channels, if you just think about it, uh, the financial channel happens fast. These are liquid positions that you can get out of very sensitive often to the funding rate, right? You can leverage something that yields three if, you're, if your funding rate is one. Uh, so the financial channel tends to uh, react quickly. Interest rates are quicker. Yet on the economic side, you need a much higher, uh, higher level of risk appetite to, to build that factory or to set up a new shop or new branches uh, because you're going to be stuck with that investment for quite some time. It just requires a lot more confidence. So that can be even stickier. Um, in, in, in response. So it's, it's just, it really maps back to a behavioral, uh, just a, uh, a behavioral phenomenon. Uh, and for a policymaker, it's super important because you can have points in time when the financial channel has responded sufficiently and even excessively, uh, but the economic channel is still uh, inching its way up the curve. And in fact, I would argue now we're in that kind of situation where the financial channel has responded quite well pretty fully. I wouldn't say it's gone crazy, uh, but it's, it's refo- responded well. And the economic side is just, you know, we're still not seeing robust investment and we're still not seeing wages and we're still not seeing people are still getting to that mindset where they, they want to take risk. And for a policymaker, what do you do when you know, the financial channel is too far ahead of the economic mm-hmm. channel? Now, it's my belief uh, that the way recessions happen in the modern uh, world is we get too optimistic in the financial channel, and we also get too optimistic in the economic channel, and at some point we have a financial disruption, some kind of shock. It can be a small one, but it triggers a sell-off uh, in the financial markets, and that forces a retrenchment or a rethink of people in the real economy about how extended they are with respect to risk, and they start uh, laying people off and cutting back on investment, 
which has a multiplier effect throughout the economy, leading to more layoffs and more cutbacks in investment, and you get a real recession. But you really, if you don't have the, the real economy extended, the real, that, that channel uh, very optimistic, it's, you need a much bigger uh, financial impulse to push the economy into recession. And I think that's where we are right now. And this is why my view all along has been, as long as I've been on Twitter, we're going to have the longest and slowest expansion, you know, uh, shallow and, and slow uh, that, that, that we've ever seen because people are still looking in the mirror. Even on the financial channel, I would argue, when we get excited, uh, we, we kind of check ourselves and say, no, 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 this is a bubble. I mean, we hear people talking about bubbles all the time. We're afraid of getting caught out. When I talk to guys right now, big investors, the word you hear is caution. Something's going to happen. We don't know what. This is long in the tooth, those kinds of things. And it's funny, after, and that's through the financial channel, which is the one that's more sensitive uh, to, uh, uh, to the stimulative policies that we've had for, for, for so long. So that tells me that the economic channel is just not there, and it's gonna, it would take a, a much bigger uh, financial shock, other things equal, to push us into recession. So the odds of recession are still, uh, in my mind's eye, uh, very, uh, very low, even though I don't expect uh, robust growth. So for a policymaker, it's, th- th- these two different channels is something uh, people haven't dealt with because the Fed in particular and most, uh, uh, and most central banks more broadly, their mandate is keyed to the economic channel. And the Fed only only over the past 10 years has started to really think about how the financial channel feeds back into monetary policy and in their formal modeling. Uh, Mark, I feel like that answer explains so much about what we've seen in the, you know, obviously that's the whole point of this in terms of lessons. But, you know, you said this was a really big one. And, you know, just the, all this stuff about oh, we're in a bubble, or all these macro hedge fund managers who think that the Fed has behaved irresponsibly by keeping interest rates low and are you know, causing all kinds of distortions. I feel like if they had all listened to that answer you know, several years ago, unfortunately, it's too late for them now. In 2017, uh, a lot of mistakes would have been avoided. On this theme of the gap between the financial channel and the real channel, another one of your lessons is uh, commodity markets. And you point out that they're driven first by speculation and that that overwhelms fundamentals. What's the lesson there? Two different things. Uh, one is just the market, market structure. So the story of commodities was in 1999, 2000, right around then, they went electronic. So you didn't have to be in the pits and know all the secret handshakes uh, to trade them. You could trade them electronically from your office uh, and then now from, from, from home. Uh, and that allowed people uh, to, to, to get involved in a way they, they hadn't uh, been easily able to before. Um, and then around 2003, 2004, there were, there were a lot of uh, there were academics talking about diversifying, the diversifying properties of, of owning commodities as an asset class. And that gained a lot of traction. At the same time, you had the emerging markets plugging into the grid. China joined the WTO, and uh, that whole emerging markets theme, you know, the paradigm has changed, was starting to take off, and, and people associated that with commodities. So we, we moved into a world where, you know, China was going to take over. Uh, they were going to eat all our commodities uh, in a very Malthusian way, and uh, therefore you had to own it. So as consultants were peddling this story about diversifying through commodities as an asset class, commodities were going up. And when guys are pitched uh, a, a story about an asset class that's going up rapidly, it makes them want to get more involved faster. So we, we kind of had this boom in investment, speculation, whatever you want to call it, in, in, in commodities from 2003 until really until 2000, and you could argue 2011. Um, 
And Mark, I want to interrupt you real quickly. Yes. We're going to do something. I want to do something really special. So for listeners, we are recording this episode on August 4th in the morning. It's uh, 8.26 a.m. on a Friday. That means we're about uh, let just under four minutes away from the monthly non-farm payrolls report, which is, of course, the most important economic data point of the month. So we're going to do something a little different. We're going to take a little interlude from the podcast. We'll return to the lessons in a moment. But we are going to talk through the jobs report as it comes out, because I think this is very exciting, the chance to be talking to a sort of experienced macro trader about a report as it's coming out. It's coming out in um, just over three minutes now. And so we'll look at the data. We'll talk about it. We'll talk about the market reaction. People will get this snapshot of how you see things, how you interpret the data. And then, of course, we can uh, come back to it. But ahead of the data, we just about uh, a little less than three minutes. Do you have any sort of early thoughts about the data? I should just note the uh, economists are looking for 180K jobs for July. The unemployment rates have fall to 4.3% and 2.4% wage growth. What are you looking at in the minutes ahead of the release? Well, the way I tend to approach these things is I look at where are the areas in which the market is heavily positioned. What are the trends that have been working uh, and what kind of data would, would be required to, to trigger either a shakeout or a reversal of these uh, of, the, of the recent trends. And the biggest recent trend has, has been short dollar, uh, both against the funding currencies like the euro and the pound uh, and, and Swissy. Uh, and against the risk currencies where emerging markets have done uh, quite well. The Antipodeans uh, in New Zealand and the Kiwi are always somewhere in the middle uh, between those two, the two camps. But uh, because dollar has been on a, on a run in a, in a negative way, if you want to call it that, it wouldn't take much. One data, one strong number could, could trigger a shakeout that could last a day or two or three or a week or whatever. I still think the longer-term trend for the dollar is down because we're in that phase of the risk cycle. You know, the U.S. has recovered. Valuations are fairly full. Let's move further out the risk spectrum to places that haven't been fully fished out. And that's where people, that's why people have gravitated to emerging markets in Europe. Tracy, are you excited about the number we're about to get in less than 60 seconds? I'm very curious to hear uh, Mark's sort of play-by-play, uh, minute-by-minute analysis. Mark, really, really quickly, because it's less than a minute now, would you try to trade around the immediate jobs report, or do you just try to you know, think about the implications for your portfolio? It depends on what I'm, what I'm thinking. If this is a situation where the positioning is really offside, and I don't think it would take much to trigger a reversal, I might try something. Uh, often I like to re uh, see the market react before jumping in if it's a trade. I also do investments, which is a different, uh, a different story. But for the trading side, I can, I can be active. Right now, I have some short dollar positions. I've pared back a little bit to get my sizing right, make sure I don't get hurt. I've had a nice run. Here we go. Numbers out. Boom. Wow. 209K jobs. So that's a beat versus 180K last month. Last month revised up from 222 to 231K. So very nice. Unemployment rate falls to 4.3% from 4.4%. That's in line with expectations. And uh, average hourly earnings growth at 2.5%. That's a little bit ahead of the expectations of 2.4%. And the labor force participation rate, which as many people would argue has been one of the 
weak spots, a concerning long-term trend, up to 62.9%. We are seeing rates pick up 10-year yield a little bit higher, not dramatically from 223 to 2.25%. Mark, give us your take. Yeah, so my take is this is that kind of shakeout. The, you know, bonds were positioned and short dollars were positioned. So now we get, we get a test of that shakeout. These aren't massively strong numbers, but they're definitely stronger than what people were looking for. I think what will stand out is average hourly earnings, that that's up. People have been very sensitive to labor, uh, labor in, inflation here. Um, so all the, all, everything is skewed towards stronger than expected, but not massively so. So this is a decent test uh, for the short dollar thesis and for the long bond thesis. My, what I would do in a case, and what I will do in a case like this, I just stand back and let it play out. And if I want to add to my positions, I wait until I think that this shakeout is over. But it's really a thing you have to feel your way through. You never know. I mean, this is a behavioral animal, this market. And you have to stand back and, 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 and watch it and see how it plays out and look for correlations breaking down and, and look for weakness in, in volume and other signs that the story is getting tired before trying to take it on. So, Mark, I think you mentioned that you had some short dollar positions. Would this be enough for you to reconsider those? No. No, particularly in the emerging markets where my positions are more important, because even though this is so I, I mentioned earlier the distinction between risk currencies and, 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 and funding currencies. This is bad for the funding currencies, but not necessarily bad for the emerging markets, because strong U.S. data, uh, it's good for risk in a certain in a sense. You see, equity markets aren't down. Right. So uh, the risky currencies trade off of risk and they trade off of bonds, whereas the funding currencies trade mostly off of bonds. And to your point about, uh, you know, sort of U.S. Uh, equities, we mentioned that all the, the dollar is up, rates were up, but we haven't seen a sell off in uh, U.S. futures uh, at this moment. We still see risk assets rising up. Uh, not not much, yeah, but, but they not, haven't sold off. Out. So, you know, the, the, which if, if you were to take a macro read from all of this, you would say, OK, people say the numbers are a little bit stronger, but it's not going to change the Fed's terminal rate, which has been coming down. Right. It's not going to make rate hikes come that much sooner necessarily, uh, but it might not be dovish forever uh, the way people had been had been pricing in. So it's a modestly strong number uh, that will shake some people out of their funding currency shorts. I, I would suspect the Japanese yen um, is, is, a, is a prime one. Euro is another that's had a nice run. Uh, but I don't think it's going to hit the emerging markets that hard. Uh, one of the fears in emerging markets, emerging markets has been that uh, you know the Fed will have to raise rates, and we know when raising when they when they raise rates it hurts emerging markets. I think that's a backwards looking view. Uh, in fact, one of the points in in, in the blog was emerging markets are, are structurally uh, different now. I don't think the the Fed's going to raise rates all that much. First of all, but more importantly, even if they did, the emerging markets are in a much better position to weather it because they have a lot less dollar denominated debt hanging over hanging over their heads, particularly the sovereigns. Uh, than than used to be than used to be the case. So it shouldn't be too bad for emerging. And if you look at the Mexican peso, it's still up on the day. Uh, the Brazilian real is flat for 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 so far uh, uh, in the futures. Uh, the ones getting hit and not even massively is the euro uh, and uh, and the pound and the yen, right? The, the the funding currency. So this is a pretty good number. We, you know, we want to see uh, the economy continue. We've had some weak data here and there. Um, it's also worth noting that the last last month stuff got got revised revised up a little bit, so that's not bad. Uh, so you know we've had some soft stuff with the autos and other areas, and uh, it's it's nice to see a little a little counterweight uh, to that. But this isn't nothing. This isn't anything earth shaking. Uh, this isn't something that's gonna that's gonna rock our worlds. How will generative AI impact the way financial services firms work? 
Here are some thoughts from EY and real-time business. At an enterprise level, how will it impact the way we work? Just like how internet changed all our lives, this technology has the potential to have a step change in how we fundamentally operate. But, uh, let me give you a few examples of what some of the use cases our clients are exploring. We are seeing our clients explore a few knowledge management use cases. For example, in, in case of wealth and asset management, providing their financial advisors with right information so that they can serve their clients better. Similarly, a claims agent in insurance or a contact center representative in case of banking and capital markets. The, the theme that we are seeing is where the machine comes in and provides contextual insights to enable the humans make better decisions, better actions in a faster manner. Learn more at ey.com. Let's return to the lessons we all should have learned. Tracy, do you want to uh, pick another lesson from Mark's list for us to <laughs> go over? Yeah, I was going to ask the oil question. Yeah, we'll get, okay, let me, okay. I'll, I'll finish okay. with the commodities and then come on to oil. Uh, so the, the tra- trading was enabled, electronic trading was enabled. The asset class was being pitched as a diversifier. At the same time, emerging markets were kind of plugging into the grid. And this led to a lot of enthusiasm in commodities. Uh, at the beginning, you know, if you go back to 1999 and that, that point in time, uh, the uh, breakdown in people trading oil, for example, was, uh, you know, 30% of the people were financial, uh, and uh, 70% of the people were commercial. That is to say they were hedging uh, either their needs uh, for, for oil or their production uh, of, of oil. Now that number is roughly reversed. It's like 80% of the people involved in oil are trading it, and 20% are the commercial guys, just because there's so many more people have gotten involved over, 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 over the years. And that means that the asset is going to be wilder. It's going to do crazier things. It's going to be less linked to fundamentals for longer periods of time. Uh, and I think we've, we've, we've seen a lot of that. And the extremes have feedback effects. Uh, you know, the, the extreme buying of oil, uh, a lot of which, interestingly, was blamed on low Fed rates, even though we, we got to $150 a barrel when Fed funds were at 5% back in 2000 and whatever, 2008 or so. Um, uh, it, it led to... It, or incentivized a lot of the shale production that was co- coming on I mean, online because they didn't care about interest rates, these guys, because they were looking to make 40-fold on their investment. And if you want to make 40-fold in your investment, it, you don't care if your funding rate, you know, 3% and 7% is the same number, right? Uh, they were borrowing because they, the price of oil was high, and it went to a much higher rate than ever uh, otherwise would have been the case because of the amount of speculation uh, and, and investment uh, in commodities as a, as a theme. So I think that's a, a super important point. The second important point to make about commodities is that over time, we find ways, technology finds ways to substitute for commodity consumption. Our oil consumption, and this uh, relates to the, the oil point, is one you know, in, in the home, home uh, homeowner basket is one less than a half of what it was in, in the in the 80s. You know, our consumption of, of oil uh, is is less than half of what it used to be uh, in the household level. And, and that's true of all commodities to some degree. People don't have gold teeth. People don't use copper as much as they used to. Over time, we find substitution, um, things to substitute for our commodity consumption because it's cleaner, because it's cheaper, for, because it's better. Uh, and commodities should go down in real terms over time. Right, so you have on the one hand speculation that leads to larger swings that have pre- predominantly been to the upside over the past 15 years, 
and you have less of a fundamental uh, driver. Yes, you have emerging markets plugging into the grid, and they're less less commodity efficient. But I bet you the new houses in China are using PVC and not copper for the most part when when they're being built out. Yeah, to some extent, human progress is the story of needing yeah. fewer commodities yeah. to maintain a standard. In of living. a very real way, it's kind of the inverse of uh, commodities. Kind of the inverse of technology. Right, shorting commodities, or it's in pro-technology. But now, you know, the case with oil. If you remember, you know, people were saying when oil fell dramatically from over 2014 to 2015, they said, "Oh, this is really bad. This is first of all, it was misdiagnosed as demand." People, one of the mistakes that we make in markets is we read way too much fundamental information. Uh, to to moves uh, to to price moves. So people were saying, "Oh no, this is a demand story. The U.S. is going to have a recession, uh, et cetera, et cetera." But it was a lot of guys that got the shale producers and other guys who got excited about a high price of oil, and they got caught. They they got caught out uh, speculating. Now the the people who were bullish uh, of, of the U.S. economy in general were saying, "Gosh, well, oil falling is going to be really good for the consumer," and I was making the point. Uh, uh, quite strongly, that it won't help very much because it's become such a small share of our overall basket. The oil intensity uh, of our GDP has declined significantly over the past 20 or 30 years, so it just doesn't matter. Uh, it just doesn't matter so much. It's not going to turn the it's not going to turn the dial. And in fact, uh, it didn't. Yeah, in the same way, it didn't hurt consumption very much uh, when it went, uh, you know, up to 100, 150. So. As oil becomes a smaller share of, of our consumption, its oscillations are are, are are going to help us less, uh, help us and hurt us less and less. The, the real problem is people, you know, in markets we say we look at something new and have to process it, and we look backwards first and say what looks vaguely similar to this in history. And the first thing that they'll find when they look back in oil and, and consumption is uh, the the early 80s and the late 70s, and those data, and, and they end up anchoring. Uh, on that reality, and those coefficients no longer obtain for the reasons uh, we just discussed. So Mark is very energetically and very eloquently connecting all the dots in all his uh, lessons for post-crisis investors. So let me see if I can get in there with one more that I think is connected to all of this, and that's your very first lesson about potential growth in developed economies being lower than it was before the crisis. Well, go back to the the early, the early 80s, and uh, we had a, a situation where we had four factors, really, that were driving growth in a really positive way, creating significant tailwinds. One was demography. Uh, baby boomers were plugging into the grid, uh, and the labor force was growing at a rapid rate. And as we know, your potential potential growth is a function of the, the growth in your labor force and a productivity number, you know, and how pr- productive that labor and the capital that you bring in with it is. So th- that was going for us. On top of that, we had a secular f- uh, factor of women joining the working the uh, the workforce. That's kind of a one off. Now women can join, come, you know, they can join and they can uh, and leave uh, just like uh, men used to. But at that time, female participation in the labor force was was very low, and they spent the 80s and 90s coming on online. I think it peaked in probably 98 or 97 or 99, according to the statistics. So it became normalized. Uh, then, so it is what it is. It oscillates with with everything else. But over that period, when they were coming in, it created effectively a growth uh, in in the labor force much faster than what uh, the actual labor force growth suggested. So that was another tailwind. On top of that, very powerfully, we had a decline in interest rates 
and a decline in inflation. Remember, in the 80s, had a very high inflation. Uh, and that means that people had clean balance sheets. No one had borrowed anything because the rates were, were just too high. Uh, and we could borrow. So people borrow more when rates come down. People borrow more uh, when inflation is more is more stable and when people don't have any debt on their balance sheets. And then the fourth point is we adopted with Reagan a deregulatory mindset. And, you know, people complain a lot about regulation. I mean, people always do. But, uh, you know, lately it's been a boogeyman for a lot of things. But people forget that back in the 70s we had real obstacles, uh, we had, uh, real regulatory obstacles. They, they were price controls. They were wage controls. We were rationing gasoline that we had to buy every other day, depending on your license plate. I mean, you guys are probably too young to remember this, but I was a little boy. I remember waiting with my dad, uh, you know, for, uh, in, in line for, for, to, buy, to buy gas. So we had a lot of uh, – and the relationship between labor and capital was, was very different. So the deregulatory mindset led to a lot of financial innovation. Consumers and businesses had clean balance sheets so we could borrow. So you had rapid credit deepening along with these labor – uh, force phenomena led to really rapid growth. That kind of ended, or at least the, the demographic portion slowed down by the end of the uh, of the 90s and stopped being a tailwind. Uh, the credit, though, continued to deepen. And so we didn't see the underlying weakness uh, in, in demography because we had this credit deepening for a long time, giving us this, you know, we had stagnating income, but it didn't feel like that because everybody could borrow. We were getting more credit cards and we were buying uh, cars and houses and, and everything on credit. So that papered over um, really the, the change in the, in the demographic uh, headwinds. That all got exposed when the, when the, when the GFC hit us. Uh, that crisis meant, okay, the credit machine, the credit tailwind is done. It's over. Now it's a headwind. So now uh, we've uncovered the demographic weakness, and we have a credit headwind. Uh, this is so labor force is growing at a slower rate. We don't have the benefit of women structurally coming into the labor force, uh, and uh, we no longer have the credit machine on. That's why we have to grow lower. So at first, after the crisis, it was cyclical. We had to work our way out from the credit boom and the typical cyclical problems. But on top of that, we structurally have a slower growth rate. And this is what, you know, Mohammed uh, el Arian calls the new normal. And what at the same, actually around the same time, I was uh, referring to it as reversion to a different mean back at my firm, but it's the same phenomenon. Uh, and recognizing this has been super important. Uh, policymakers always want to believe they can do more uh, to change the growth rate than they can because that's what they have to sell, right? Both Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump were promising 4% growth, different ways to get there, but that's what they were promising. But recognizing that policy can't do that much about it and that all developed economies are probably going to have the same demographic phenomenon and similar structural credit headwinds, or at least no longer the tailwinds, uh, is, a, is a very important observation when you're thinking globally about where to allocate uh, your risk. All right, Mark, I'm going to ask you one more question, and it's going to be really unfair because I'm going to ask you the most controversial question, but we we have to do like a speed round. Okay. So I'm going to make you, We this is a question we probably could have done a whole episode on, uh, but we're going to have, it's got to have to be very short okay. answer. you got it. Number 13, I'm fascinated by, you say, very few investors can disentangle their political preferences from economic analysis. What's the story there? It's just people, uh, read Daniel Kahneman. I mean, we, we get so deep into our own narratives and the confirmation bias is so strong. I mean, look at how many guys became bullish when Donald Trump became president and how many people turned bearish when he became president. And how many people objected or were fighting the stock market for the whole period under Obama because they didn't like his policies? Uh, 
and how many people like the policies, right? So it, this is what you see, and you see it time and time again, and the seasoned investor just kind of gets past that. I didn't think Trump was going to get elected, and, and definitely someone I don't I don't think is is uh, uh, suited for the for the job. That's my personal my personal view. But I didn't think he was going to cause a recession. But a lot of guys, I saw a lot of guys fall into that trap, and, and a lot of people who've been bearish for eight years, you saw them flip the switch and say, "Oh, I'm bullish now," and they mumbled something about tax cuts that haven't materialized. But we can see now in the data that you know what really happened is we went into the the, the election coiled, right? Uh, everyone was ready to take risk, uh, and uh, it played out a little bit differently. Uh, than most people thought, but you know the economy, underlying economy, is doing okay, and the fact that Trump's policies didn't materialize and we're still holding up uh, is a sign that, uh, that that things are okay. All right, Mark, phenomenal conversation. Gotta leave it there. Uh, great talking to you. I loved how we did that uh, jobs report thing. That was really cool. Uh, I feel like I learned a lot there. Really appreciate you coming on. My pleasure. It was great talking to you guys. Tracy, I thought that was really fun. Mark obviously knows way more about so many things than, you know, sort of uh, we do or even a lot of, uh, you know, typical people in finance do. Uh, I thought that was a pretty cool conversation. Yeah. And I thought the way he put this idea of um, sort of the financial world and the real economy running at two different speeds, the way he framed that is really, really useful. And it kind of amazes me now that it, it feels like, Others, and in particular, the Federal Reserve, are only just beginning to think of it in that way. But uh, it, it seems like a pretty big deal. Yeah, and I think that that's sort of like the underlying theme of all of this, mm. which is that human behavior, I mean, his blog is called Behavioral Macro. And so the sort of traditional macro ignores what he, you know, these sort of behavioral things that humans do things because we're animals and we run in herds and we have fear and greed that don't necessarily correspond with supply and demand, but that trying to really like suss out which of those, uh, you know, factors are driving what has sort of been a key aspect of understanding the post-crisis period. Yeah. And also the idea that human beings have a tendency to cling on to um, their previously understood notions of how the world works is really important. So I know we were talking about uh, (laughs) the financial crisis anniversary coming up. Uh, I remember when I first started writing about quantitative easing in 2009, you know, writing analysis about how this was going to push up financial asset prices through a substitution effect. And I remember people getting really, really outraged about that idea. And now it's just common knowledge, right? right? Well, and also it's like everyone just assumed that it was hyperinflationary, like all these sort of deep seed, oh, printing money, that's going to cause Weimar. Just like all these things that we, you know, Mark referred to as like we anchor on certain periods. So when it comes to money creation, we might anchor on some hyperinflationary period. When it's oil, we might think about the late 70s and just without very little thought sort of draw that one thing we know to the current thing. And of course, uh, you know, History is never quite the same as the first time around. Yeah. Human beings are weak, weak entities. Flawed. <laughs> and on that note, that's the perfect uh, way to, uh, you know, sort of set the stage for the next few years. Just a reminder that we're weak, weak, flawed uh, entities. All right. 
Uh, well, this has been another episode of the Odd Lots podcast. You can follow me on Twitter at Tracy Alloway. And you can follow me on Twitter at The Stalwart. And you can follow Mark Dow on Twitter at Mark Dow. You should also check out his blog, markdow.tumblr.com. And follow our producer, Sarah Patterson, Sarah Pat with two T's. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal wherever you get your podcast, And watch on Bloomberg Originals, Bloomberg Television, or BTV+. Plus.